Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Split-ins on Grunt Machine. Let's introduce ourselves and have a look at split-ins. How are you doing? Hello, mate. I'm fine, thanks. Good. Bonza. Excellent. What's your name? Uh, John Chan, Ripper. John Ripper. Yeah. Yes, excellent. How are you doing? Jolly well, thank you. How are you? Excellent. Jolly What's your well. name? Eminent Crowther. That's an excellent tie. Good grief, is it? Really? Where did you get that? Uh, well, actually, it cost me 20 cents. I've forgotten where I bought it. Well, that's mm. superb. It's really yeah. nice seeing you here. It's really nice having you on the show. How are you doing? Hello. My name's Eddie Rayner. I was born on the uh, 19th of... <laughs> It's excellent. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Very well. It's really nice having you on the grub machine. Good being here too, Paul. What's your name? Robert. Robert, okay. Let's move on. What do we got here? Hello. This person doesn't talk. Goodness me. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. What's your name? No. No. <coughs> That's excellent. Okay, we move on now to uh, Tim Finn. We're going to have a chat to Tim. Tim, how long have you been in Australia? A year, Paul. And what have you been doing in Australia? You know, what kind of things? Uh, very good question. We've been <laughs> playing music and... Um... Swimming and uh, generally Australiaising ourselves. Uh, tell me, you know, something I, I really want to ask you is this the, the shaved hair, the makeup, and stuff like this. Do, do people hassle you when you walk down the street? Is that a. Well, part of our function as entertainers is to provoke a reaction from people, and that reaction, the stronger that reaction is, the more effective we are as entertainers. And so if people laugh, which they do, if people are, f are run away crying, which little girls and boys sometimes do, how, then how we are succeeding as entertainers. The off-stage situation reinforces the on-stage situation. That's superb. You, uh, how would you describe your music? Neoclassy, cosmoidal, cosmetic, in a nutshell. Now tell me, you're going to England, right, in mm -hmm. what, April? Yes. And Phil Manzanera is going to, is he going to reproduce or are you going to redo mental notes? Redo and improve, actually. Um, Phil Manzanera met us last year in about May, I think it was, and expressed interest in producing our album. We'll do mental notes again, but change a couple of the tracks and it'll be a better album overall than the first mental notes. By 1976, Split Ends had ditched their New Zealand manager Barry Coburn and signed a new management deal with Michael Gidinski, head of their Australian record company Mushroom. He appointed John Hopkins to supervise the group on their big trip to London. Split Ends bass player Mike Chun London had always been the dream destination, and so it was extremely exciting. And then being there as a group, that was made it sort of doubly exciting. Brass player Robert Gillies. The prospect of world domination. <laughs> that sounds ludicrous, but I think that's how we felt. Vocalist Tim Finn. Phil Manzanera, I remember he said to us soon after we got there, you know, that there's a big hole you could drive a truck through, you know, in the, in the rock world, and it was just perfect timing for us. Well, they're just mad. Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera. It was just an interesting mix. You know, the hairdos and all that stuff, and, you know, Tim's voice. It was beautiful, I just loved it. And at the time, there was Phil Judd as well, who had a, a very weird character voice, so they had seemed to have all the different ingredients that were necessary to be a successful band, you know, and I love the songs. Without a UK record deal, Split Ends headed into the Basing Street studios with producer Phil Manzanera and set about remaking their album Mental Notes. Percussionist Noel Crombie. Serious studio world, London studio, and you know, it was famous musicians drifting in and out. I was in the um, studio trying to do something and I looked in and Brian Eno was in there visiting his friend Phil Manzanera. I think I immediately froze up. Probably ruined the rest of the day. <laughs> I remember Eno walking into the studio when we were recording Walking Down a Road and there's a part in the song where Eddie does a piano arpeggio 
and you know thought that was that should be the song you know that that was enough just that part we had about 13 other parts in that song you know he was always he came and saw us play as well because he was intrigued by us but he always thought we were far too complicated and in the end he didn't really dig us much and that that was interesting to have somebody actually make a critique of the band you know it was pretty rare of re-recording mental notes was kind of mad, waste of time. We should have just left it alone, done new stuff, you know. Well, you know, it was just really pretty anal of us to have done that. I mean, we we just weren't happy, as I said, with mental notes, and we thought we could do it much better, and it was a re- retrogressive thing to do. We should, have, we should have moved on. Keyboard player, Eddie Rayner. I think it's just a more professional recording, I think, and a more professional performance by the band. By then we'd honed our arrangements and our, and our sounds a bit better. We were able to leave off the songs that we didn't want on the record, you know, make it into a potentially a better record. I don't know whether it is or not. I found myself in silver dreams Talking in my sleep to bones and queens I've spoken words, you know They just don't mean the same thing I think the new ones were better. Titus was um, done, and so I got to play the trumpet on that. And I could be so bold to say it sounded a little better than the synthesizer. Oh, Titus, it's one of our favourites. As the years go by, you can enjoy that one um, more and more, really. It's a great arrangement, and has a bit of magic about it, yeah. Another standout track recorded at these sessions was a new song by Phil Judd. Drummer, Emlyn Crowther. Phil came along with the song Sweet Dreams. And he just came along with his on his acoustic guitar. But on the way to rehearsal, I just heard on the radio for the first time Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. You know how that goes. This fantastic drumming. I thought, that's great. So I went and I picked up my heavy drumstick from there, which I never ever used. And Phil started going ding 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 And I went You know, in my head it was sounding like this anyway. Spo- 
car is the back seat of my car is on very well to cry now yes it's on very well to lie caught the attention of international record label Chrysalis and in June 1976 a deal was signed. It was a hot summer that year in England and a long tedious one for the ends. The album release was two months away and the band was unable to play any live gigs. It's very ironic you know the split ends I think a great live band. We couldn't get an agency interested enough to take us on and give us a tour you know and that to me is lack of good management, lack of good thought around the band, because it should have been more than possible for us to have just played, played and played and played, you know. But it took us a while to get all that going, and it was, again, it was the last straw, really. Me and Phil basically been hardly talking by that stage. And it's so hard to explain why. It wasn't like we had a fight or, you know, we just sort of started not communicating. Phil Judd. We lived in a house in Forest Hill in London together, and I remember there was a piano room with the piano, and Eddie was in the house as well. You know, I'd hear Tim thumping away and singing in the room and then Eddie might go in and play for a bit and I'd go, oh, it's my turn now. And we'd all sort of take turns, but we wouldn't go in there and share it. You know, none of the come and listen to this sort of stuff. It was an odd time. Uh, I don't know what was going on. Let's do I was writing more and more stuff and getting more and more frustrated. It was the same old thing again. We came to Australia, sing the same bunch of songs for a year and then go to England and the same again. And um, it was like two years went by and it was like written dozens of tracks and um, even the band didn't want to hear what I was doing. It was just bizarre. Because we'd go to the rehearsal room and I'd be itching to play something new, you know, come on, let's, uh, how about this, try this, try that. And Tim was probably feeling a bit the same, but no, we'd have to go and rehearse something. We tried a few new things, but they just didn't hit the mark. The easy higher rehearsals, musically I think we were a total disaster. But culturally, in terms of enjoying each other's company, humour, we just had time on our hands in London and we enjoyed it. But musically, I don't know, we only came out with one song after weeks of rehearsal. Another great divide. how well that worked. Now look, work on the brilliant riff of all time. Just sit in your bedroom and work it out. Because a good modern melody through there would be great. Rip it off, just change it slightly. Make it good. Yeah. So now we should be able to go right through the song. I think. We could leave it or we could go sleep or tennis or home. The boredom of waiting for something to happen was temporarily relieved by a showcase performance at the Marquee in London. Unusually for such occasions, the media demanded an encore, and Split End spent the following day doing interviews. The album, known as Second Thoughts in Australasia and Mental Notes Everywhere Else, was released in August 1976. The record reviews were positive, but tended to focus on the band's weird hairstyles and clown-suited image, rather than the music. Some sort of festering despair must have seeped in somewhere. And in a meeting, just decided that we needed a new drummer. 
the musical development of like the early days of really fractionated structures we were trying to move on from that and just be a bit more rock solid and Eminem wasn't that kind of drummer uh, and as much as Tim would try and draw, talk him around to keeping rock steady it's um, you can't ch change a man's ways when he drums a certain way. Mike came home one day and said I've got some news for you and I said oh yeah and he said the band wants to get another drummer and I said well any reason and he said oh well it's Phil and Tim really and didn't say much more and I, I just didn't I think I was, I was more disgusted than disappointed that they could actually do it or go about it that way with no prior warning or no comment like, we don't like your jokes or something, you know. Robert Gillies. I got the job of interviewing all the drummers, can you believe that? I've been all day taking these calls. In the end, I was saying things like, well, you're going to have to cut your hair to see whether they kept talking. Drummer Malcolm Green had grown up in London and had played with bands like Love Affair, Honeycomb and Octopus. I ended up spending two or three years in Europe working in quartets and sextets, playing all this music, which was not very nice. I mean, good musicians, but no real feel. And um, I decided I really want to join a good band. And that's when I came across Split Ends. We auditioned a few drums. And then Mal had a real simple style of playing the drums, a really heavy way of using the snare, and um, got the job. Then I was shown the film clips of the boys, and you know I was just a regular long-haired jeans and t-shirt kind of guy, and the guys were pretty extreme in those days. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> maybe one of these people. But I was just so into the music, I thought, what the hell? And I just threw myself into the whole spirit of, of the thing, you know. Uh, and then I, I think I had about two weeks before the tour started. Split Ends had finally secured the services of the tour agency Cowbell. Someone like Chris Wright, you know, the boss at Chrysalis, must have just said, listen, baby, take this band, shove them on the road, and I'll do you a favour one day or whatever. We signed to Cowbell, and boof, we're busy as bastards. We're driving here, we're driving there, just like the old days. <laughs> The Ends played to thousands of people up and down Great Britain as support band for Jack the Lad. Jack the Lads, that's what they were, they were lads. A lot of them, um, they're really nice guys, you know, and um, a lot of beer swilling and a lot of partying going down. They were Geordie boys who, um, yeah, they could whip up an audience, something fantastic. And I would say that was probably the best tour we did, actually. From my memory, that was the most fun and the most learning curve in terms of how to, how to be with an audience, all that stuff. It was the last gig on the tour and it was practical jokes time. We were all a bit naive, we didn't kind of realise there was going to be practical jokes. And they put tape across Eddie's keyboard, I think they detuned Judsy's guitar, put talcum powder all over my drums. So it was like, hey, we've got to do something back to them. We did have this unwritten law of triple retribution, so if anybody did something below the belt to somebody, then that person was entitled to do it back, but three times as badly. We all ran across their set two or three times, I think. Starkers, probably with our makeup on and the hair up still, though. <laughs> I do remember kind of running in front of the drummer and bending down in front of him. And, and, and the other band were a little bit gobsmacked, but laughing. I mean, there was probably two or 3,000 people there. They did make the effort for the shows. That was what was great. Yeah, there'd be some stunt or something. And people loved, as always, people love the gimmicky things. You know, so they loved the spoon solo. Noel Crombie. We managed to attract attention because uh, I suppose you, you had that Antipodean sort of notion that you've got to really try hard there because everything must be really shit hot, you know, and you've got better be on your best performance. And there was part of us that probably thought we, you know, we wanted to be the weirdest thing they'd ever seen. <laughs> and they'd had a fair few weird things in the, their history already. In contrast to Tim and Noel's pointy, teased hair, Phil went for the smooth look. Shave my head, yes. Only because I, I suffer from trichotillomania, which is the neurotic process of pulling your hair out. 
But I remember we went to a party about two days after I did it, and Brian Eno was there, and when he saw that I'd shaved my head, he said, Buggy, you, I was about to shave mine. He was sort of pissed off that I'd gone and shaved my head as a look, you know. Very odd. It's a very fashion-driven world, the music world there, and particularly at that time when punk suddenly exploded, we didn't really fit in very well. You know, we had musical roots that went back to what the punk thing was rebelling against, but a style that was actually pretty quintessential punk in some respects. Eddie Rayner. I think that um, we did influence the early punks with the hairstyles, definitely. I mean, they used to come to our gigs. Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious sitting in the front row at the Imperial College in London, sort of looking at us sideways, not knowing what the hell to think about us. And I think they probably decided that we were a bunch of poofs and that they quite liked the hairstyles, though. <laughs> so they decided to take that bit off us, you know. And they did it quite successfully, but I mean, that's my story. I'm going to stick to it. I was the first guy in the band to be spat upon. What a dubious honour that was. We had turned up at the end of that sort of glam art rock era as far as the UK was concerned, so we were out of time. That was just such a, a radical shift in what the young culture wanted in terms of musical styles, the full-onness of uh, punk, that um, it left us all pretty confused. Um, for me it was inspiring. I was wanting to be more sort of um, that way, that type of band, and whereas Tim I think was wanting us to be more sort of pop or something, I don't know. There's a song I know, I know were not sure how to proceed with the band and they gave us a budget to go and make a single and it was sort of, I think they were testing us out to see whether we could write a single or not and they were passing uh, remarks like oh, that single, Another Great Divide that would make a great album because it's so complex, way too complex for a single Producer Phil Manzanera It's one of the annoying things really but if you have a hit single all the doors open, everything speeds up very quickly and it's as simple and as difficult as that. It's going to be much, much quicker if you can have a hit single. They didn't have a hit single. And it just doesn't end. 
Finnis in the hot seat at the moment. Tim, first of all, thank you for coming back to New Zealand. Well, thank you for having us. It's nice to be here. We've had a good holiday and we're looking forward to touring. How are the sales of mental notes going in Britain? Uh, well, it's still selling steadily. The only figures I had was um, after the first couple of months that it sold between seven and 8,000, which is good for a first album, but not outrageously so. But the good thing is that it's still selling and uh, at the same rate. Very pleasing news that you brought out on air tonight to find that uh, the album is being played by KSAN in San Francisco, the FM station. Mm -hmm. uh, the number one FM station in San Francisco. That must please you. No end. Yeah, they uh, programmed the whole album, which is good. Every track. And, uh, yeah, FM plays makes it so different in the States from England. You know, we'll, we'll get airplay in the States. They're sort of extraterrestrial, aren't they? No, I've never seen anything like this. They're hair. Just what the doctor ordered. Totally unlike. Anything. The story of my life. Mental Notes by Split Ends on Chrysalis Records and Tapes. At the start of 1977, following the Courting the Act tour of Australia and New Zealand, Chrysalis USA flew Split Ends to America for a showcase tour. Mike Chun. We flew into Los Angeles, very exciting, hopped into a limo, because Chrysalis turned it on in a way. Yeah, yeah, it started off with the works, you know, we thought, oh yeah, we've arrived. Yeah, although they always lay it on in America. You know, it takes you a while to realise that everybody gets a limo the first time through, you know. We stayed at the Hyatt on Sunset Strip. We were taken out to dinner with the radio people, but we started to sense something was wrong, I think, when they pulled out the clay models of Noel's head that you planted grass seed in, and the grass would grow and you could shape it into his hair. Yeah, oh, the clay pot head, crikey, they have They had promotional ideas that sort of appalled us. I had this realisation, you know, you're a brand, and that's what they're selling this week. We did in-store appearances and press, and then we did promotional gigs. Split Ends will be at the Record Factory in San Rafael at 3.30 today. Well, I guess that's a little late. Uh, pick up Split Ends' album at the Record Factory stores, and you can see Split Ends at the Boarding House this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And if you weren't over there at 3.30 this afternoon, well, sorry you missed them. And now, ladies and gentlemen. drove up to San Francisco, put on a show at the boarding house, and we killed. They loved it. Standing ovation after another great divide. And the next morning we got a review in the San Francisco Examiner or whatever it was, which said that we were a bunch of idiots and should go back home. It was the worst review I'd ever read. And my heart fell as I read more and more. He just lacerated us. And that night, the place was full. And there were some of the members of the tubes, the tubes, were there, as I recall. And they came backstage afterwards. And they said, if you got a bad review from that guy, we knew you were going to be interested. Keeping a lonely vigil while the girls all have a ball. The stories come out thick and fast, long, short, and tall. Frank Dupree's on the flying trapeze has finally come down to earth. And good old Chris, the contortionist, is bent, if not worse. Dear old Merle, the striptease girl, will do anything for kicks. And the old magician has disappeared, still up to his old tricks. While the gag man's been gagged and the straight man's gone straight 
The mime artist, too clever for words, and the MC is too late. Split ends from New Zealand, very strange group, strange looking, and they uh, sound pretty strange too. Take uh, their ideas from a lot of different groups, it sounds like, a lot of different influences. Little uh, Peter Gabriel in there, definitely from their lead singer, Tim Finn. Well, Americans didn't know what to make of us, really. There was a love-hate sort of thing going on. Some people just couldn't handle it, you know. And others thought, fantastic, you know. About your hair. Mm -hmm. About it, yeah. It is about <laughs> hair. It's, a, it's an approximation of a hairstyle, which I, I'm working towards. How would you describe your music? Neoclassic, cosmoidal, cosmetic, mental rock. I certainly hope it clears up. You ought to try a little calamine lotion. <laughs> I don't know what that is. We don't have that in New Zealand. <laughs> Classic group. The guy looks like he hit your barber. Had my barber? Or your barber had him, depending on... <clears throat> she won't like that at all. You could tell him anything, really. Which, if you felt like it, you know, that's what you did. <laughs> They'd often ask about New Zealand, you know, in interviews about where New Zealand was and what we did in New Zealand, what it was like. One of our pet little phrases we had was we used to like wanking and rooting. They'd just look at you go, right, right, yeah, yeah, great, great. <laughs> And we'd be pissing ourselves, you know. Eddie, would you like to say bye-bye? No. No? Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm not going to do a thing until you say uh, good night or, or good evening or it's been a pleasure or bye-bye or see you or some sort of, uh, you know, departing uh, gesture. Heavy hangs the question. Ed, do it. Oh, bye-bye. Probably of all the crowds, the LA, you know, there was a sort of a, those type of people enjoyed what we did more than, you know, when we ended up in Texas and whatnot. Um, that was pretty predictable what was going to happen down there. Oh, it was horrible. Went down to the south, Houston, Dallas, completely uninterested in us. Oh, cowboys, you know, people with 10 gallon hats and guns in their boots and that whole culture. A lot of stunned mullet reactions. There wasn't a band that we comfortably sat with, you know, in terms of a billing. So you'd often end up with some weird bloody country band supporting you. And half the audience when we came on would just <laughs> leave or something, you know, it was odd. I saw you standing there at the bar. Your eyes were glazed with passion. A look of a flower, a secret smile. great moment at the electric ballroom. There were two in the crowd and seven of us. And we did stupid things like the next night there was virtually no one there. So We used to start with Late Last Night and Tim would go out and sing the opening verse to a backing tape and then we would all walk on quietly behind him and as the chorus came in with the whole band Late Last Night we'd all come in. One night he went out and started singing, so we all snuck off and sat in the uh, empty seats out the front. <laughs> and uh, so the tape finished and he went, late! And there was total silence because there was no one up there but him. He stopped, to his credit. All right, you guys, where are you? Get up here! So there was an element of madness, a deep-rooted suspicion that this was going to get worse and worse. Phil Judd. I was very, very depressed being away from my family for six weeks. 
Tim was very, very depressed with American audiences. Well, a song now called Sugar and Spice, and it, uh, it's another song that deals with love, the kind that's tasty, and uh, things that are nice, sugary and spicy, and blah, blah, yak, yak, woof, woof. Love in one of its many tones. Sugar and Spice, for God's sake, take me out of this. I had tried to uh, keep myself amused and uh, alive at the end of gigs. Eddie and Michael and me would often go off and play 10-pin bowling in America, wherever we were. And Tim would just stay locked up in his room. Whether he likes it or not, that's what he did. He wouldn't come out and be part of us and stuff. And I, I was getting frustrated with that. Like, where's my mate? What's happening? You know. And we weren't the sort of at the age where you can actually go in and put your hand around somebody like you would today as a bloke and say, "Come on, you know what's wrong?" You know. Uh, it was like, "You're doing your thing. What, I don't want to know." I got to the stage where I was so down that I would actually go on stage and turn my back to the audience and play with my back to the audience the whole time. I thought it was art. <laughs> and welcome to our last night here in Atlanta at the Southeast Music Hall. Thank you, Malcolm. I do remember the gig in Atlanta when we were playing and poor old Phil had a freeze. Mal Green. There's a song called Nightmare Stampede, which is then one of the more complex songs. I think it was a 12 or 14 minute number very musical, the stops and starts and sometimes the guitar is just playing on its own or Eddie is and of course the band comes in. Phil was suddenly supposed to come in and it's guitar only. There's a pause, nothing's happening and we kind of look up and we look at each other and nothing's happening, he's just standing there and suddenly Eddie has to kind of emulate and bluff what Phil would be doing and the penny dropped that nothing was going to happen. And we managed to wing our way through the whole of that tune and I mean I'll take my hat off to Eddie. Nothing ever surprised me about Phil and his behaviour and I'd turn around sometimes and he just wouldn't be there, he would have walked off stage and something little would have thrown him like he couldn't hear himself properly or his guitar was out of tune or he broke a string or something like that, you know. And he'd just tend to not be able to handle it, he'd, he'd always describe it, I got really thrown. I used to have this problem too where I would drink a lot before I'd play and of course that means you've got to go to the loo. And I don't think Tim ever realised that. There was a couple, there was another show he did in St Kilda once on the, on the waterfront where I was in such incredible bladder pain that I had to walk off the stage. And Tim took it all personally. And in actual fact, all I needed was to have a good whiz. And um, when I got off stage, walking back on stage was too embarrassing to do. So I just stayed off and Tim had thought I'd piked out and gone. The last night in Atlanta, um, Tim got really, really frustrated with me. I was getting sick of him uh, not trying on stage. I can forgive anything pretty much except that. So we just got pissed off with each other. and I'd actually taken some acid, which I never did on stage. That was the only time I ever did. Chicken! What am I drinking? <coughs> what am I drinking? Hail Atlanta. Everything seemed very clear to me all of a sudden. And I, I think I said to him something like, you shouldn't have left the stage. He just jabbed me in the chest saying... What needed to be said, he just let rip at me verbally, and so I just let rip with my fist. He swung a punch at me, and it was it was pretty pathetic. As a fight, it was pathetic, but as a statement, it was pretty brutal and direct. And um, that was it. You know that we didn't talk again. The whole unit wouldn't talk to me after the Atlanta thing. Felt pretty estranged, estranged than fiction. I travelled with the crew in their trucks. I was that sort of peripherified. <laughs> I was the outsider. I was cast as the outsider straight away. But I deserved it because I struck out physically at someone and I shouldn't have. Mike Chun. I kind of sympathise because my phobic disorder was a similar thing. I think, well, I roomed with them because we were the two with problems, I suppose. So there I was, warmly smashed on tranquilizers every day and he was smashed on brandy. There we go. We were like uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Robert Gillies. I do have one photo that I took of everyone at an airport at the end of that tour, and and everyone's looking in a different direction. That sort of encapsulates.
77 US tour, Tim and Eddie went to Baltimore to write new songs, while everyone else but Mike went back to London. Phil Judd had quit the band, so Mike, still suffering from agoraphobia, flew to New Zealand to invite old friend Alistair Riddell to join Split Ends on guitar. I flew from Chicago, desperate to get home, because my condition meant, in Auckland I was always normal. So the minute I arrived, that night, Jeff Neil Finn, Buster Stiggs were doing a show at the Maybent Theatre at Auckland University, so I just sort of snuck along. Alistair Riddell was at the show. So I said, oh, Alistair, I need to talk to you. And the next day I asked him if he wanted to join the band, but the irony was that the guy who did join the band I'd just seen playing was the Neil Finn. Mike flew back to London and told the other ends that Alistair Riddell wouldn't be joining the band. Rob Gillies. Everyone was thinking, well, we'll advertise again and we'll just come up with an interesting new member. And I think Mike had the bright idea to contact Neil, and nobody else had thought of it. And how obvious, and how brilliant. I was endlessly fascinated by music. Tim Finn's brother, Neil. Partly getting a look at it through Tim's eyes, because he was six years older than me, so what he was doing seemed incredibly evolved and glamorous all the time for me as a youngster. I'd learned how to play guitar probably around the same time as he did and piano as well. The words I have to say may well be simple, but they're true. Until you give your love, there's nothing more that we can do. folk club in Tiamat, it was called the All in Some Folk Club and it was really run by this woman, Felicity Saxby. They taught me quite a few traditional songs and certainly in the context of folk festivals and folk club we got to hear a lot of traditional music. Through the folk club, Neil had struck up a friendship with music enthusiast Rod Murdoch, which developed into a writing partnership. In 1975, the duo performed on stage in Tauranga and Hamilton as support act for Split Ends. The following year, Neil supported the Ends again for the entire New Zealand tour, this time solo. Mike Chun. So Neil joined us, played his own song, Late in Rome. I don't know, it's wacky, we seem to take it all for granted. Oh yes, he's 16, he's written a great song and he sings wonderfully, he plays great piano, he plays guitar and mandolin, and so what? <laughs> Would you put your songs together
Neil and former Split Ends drummer Jeff Chun soon formed a band called After Hours. Jeff Chun. After Hours, to me, really worked. It was actually Neil Finn, Jeffrey Chun, Buster Stiggs, uh, Brent Eccles, a guy called Alan Brown on bass. So it had some weight there. Neil's songs were fantastic, and I had a couple of sort of quirky things. That's when I wrote Julia, actually. Julia, hear me now. I'm head over heels and I'm turning in circles. We did a gig at the Maidmont opening up for Waves and that was kind of generally regarded as a bit of a roaring success actually. I think we got really good review from Frank Stark. That was, you know, enough to feel like it had been a roaring success getting one good review. Coming of age old memories is just another page in an open We had some props, you know, we did the ends thing. So when we did Fallout with the lads, it sort of looked like a room in, in wartime London. And the song is so appropriate. After Hours seemed full of potential, but their second concert at the Maidment Theatre in April 1977 was also their last. I got a call to join Split Ends about three days before that show was scheduled, and um, the only reason I ever hesitated on the brink of being, when I was asked to join Split Ends really, was because that was coming up and I suddenly went, oh God, I've got to, it was just starting to look like it might become something, and so I suppose I thought, well, you know, loyalty to that, and but it was, you know, I mean, I was never going to say no, really. The idea of going to England to join Split Ends, which I'd grown up with, was too much, too compelling. Within 24 hours of suggesting Neil Finn join Split Ends, Mike Chun decided to leave the group. I just said, I've got to go. I said, oh, Tim, I just have, I have to leave. It was a turbulent time. Psychologically, I couldn't hack living that life of making sure I didn't have panic attacks by taking tranquilizers. Whereas back in Auckland, I could just not do that. So I was gone. Drummer Mal Green quickly suggested a replacement bassist by the name of Nigel. Nigel was an old friend of mine. Again, he was in Octopus with me, and basically Nigel and I became friends, and, and he, he was really a mentor in my life at that time. I, I was always in awe of him as a bass player. Formerly of Hatfield in England... Nigel Griggs. My brother formed a band in 1963 and he, he needed a bass player and he wanted his kid brother to, to learn bass. So I had a place in the band before I even had a bass when I was 13. The band that I was in was a band called Cortinas, which eventually changed their name to Octopus. Mum managed, Dad was the roadie. We made one album and we had one hit in Italy. I'd played with Malcolm in Octopus. He was one of the drummers okay. in Octopus way, way back, so we'd known each other for many years. When I was in the south of France, he wrote to me saying, I've just joined this New Zealand band, Split Ends. This is what they look like. Can you send me that poster where they've all got like that teeth? And weird, weird, one of the weirdest yeah. photos. I think, oh, yeah, good one, Mal. You know? <laughs> he sent me the record as well, which I liked. But I didn't really 
it seemed a bit dated to me in a way because at that stage it was mid-70s and the first wave of punk was going through Europe like you wouldn't believe. But I really liked it musically. And about six months later, I was back in England and Malcolm rung me to say, Nudge, we're looking for a bass player. I went up to London within about an hour of the call. I got to the door and about to walk in and I remember stopping and thinking, I just knew instinctively I'm going to know these guys for a long time. March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu.